Welcome to the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast, where we help urologists and staff achieve peak economic and practice efficiency so there is time and energy to focus on patient care and a happy life. I'm your host, Scott Painter, with my co-hosts, Mark Painter and Dr. Ray Painter. Welcome to episode 48 of the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Painter, with my co-host, Mark Painter and Dr. Ray Painter. And today we're going to do kind of a part two of the documentation support for lab tests. We covered this in our monthly webinar, but we wanted to circle back and and we had a couple more questions come in and we just want to discuss it further. And if you missed that, I uh, want to kind of review that. And the second thing we want to discuss is uh, coding for laparoscopic and robotic procedures. We've seen a few questions come in. Uh, on uh, on the forum and other places that we wanted to circle back again with that as well. So with that, um, I'm going to turn it over to Mark and uh, you can kind of bring us, I guess if those that did not attend the monthly webinar, you can kind of bring everybody up to speed and then kind of add the clarification there. All right. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. So, you know, we, we did address this in our monthly uh, webinar for the PRS network clients, um, and you know th this really came about uh, because there is a deeper look um, being taken by a lot of the auditors, and and um, I've been involved in a few different uh, payer uh, physician. We'll we'll just call them disagreements, but really it was the payers were taking a deep dive to try and take back some money because they looked at a few. Uh, charts for different groups, and this actually happened in more than one part of the country, um, that didn't have what they felt was the appropriate uh, support for ordering a test. Um, so they were really going back in and trying to take back some of the money. And what this the, one of them happened to be around Euroflow codes. There were a couple around uh, urinalysis, and then we have some of the new tests with PCR. So there's there's a lot of things that urologists order, and especially when they're billing it in-house. Um, but it's true of everything that you do that your documentation of why you need a test is very important. Now with the E&M stuff, we've always, uh, we've been teaching you, and this is also becoming important, is that it's important to to actually document it in the medical decision-making portion that you used the test re results in patient management. So there's these are, again, documentation details that are essentially bringing what you're thinking and, and putting it into the electronic medical record. And so our, when we talked about it generally, you've got specific things that need to be in place one needs to support whatever diagnosis codes that are required for payment, which is kind of a, a payment side of the equation. And if you're not listing <clears throat> any of the diagnoses that you are actually uh, the cause for you to consider ordering a particular test, um, then you're going to have a, a bigger problem. So um, you've got to think of it in the in the grand total of the the medical record of the payment side. You've got to have the right diagnosis because there are LCDs and LCAs out there um, from various payers that require specific diagnoses for a given 
uh, CPT test. Um, so you've got to understand what's covered and what's not covered. Um, and then your note has to actually tie that back in. It's certainly easy for a biller to go through a list and pick a diagnosis code off and make sure that you get paid. And that's their job to make sure you get paid. But if you ever get uh, audited and there's no support in the record for the code that you used, then that's fraud. So you need to make sure that you're clearly supporting any of the tests that you order uh, with an order that supports the the diagnosis code that is uh, either covered or not covered, but the reason that you ordered that test. And if it's not covered um, for the reason you're ordering the test, then now you're talking about uh, potentially looking at an ABN or a uh, or a, a direct charge to the patient um, to get those services covered. And that's certainly better to find out before rather than after. Um, well, so we, we had that discussion and, and I just reiterate that here, but the one of the couple of the questions that came in because this is a big issue right now was what about those of you who have developed specific clinical pathways or protocols for when a test should be ordered? Um, if you're following that protocol, uh, is that enough of a of of support for ordering that particular test? And you know, when when we look at that uh, that overall uh, directive as to how you're managing patients, you do have a reason for ordering the test. The problem is is that when an auditor gets a record gets a record based on a record request. They have no access, uh, nor do they have any desire to look beyond the clinical note that you are providing to them in support of the services that you provided or ordered that day. So if you do not specifically reference in your documentation that that particular test was ordered per practice protocol, based on the present condition or, or the, the circumstances for that particular patient, nobody's going to look beyond the medical record and that denial is going to come back. And yeah, maybe you could fight it and say, I was following practice yeah. protocols and I don't really need to, uh, to add that to the record. And you might be able to overturn one or two of those, but the, the bottom line is that is a foolish gamble. Um, what you really need to do is make sure in your record, if you're ordering this because of protocol, put the circumstances in, tie the protocols together. I mean, most of you have dot phrases and things that you can add uh, that can help you make sure you say the right things related to that particular patient. But every patient order for every test needs sp specific support within your medical record. So is it sufficient for, I mean, you're, you're saying you need to go beyond just saying um, per clinical guidelines? I mean, you need to put more to it or can you, will that suffice? Would an auditor look at that and say, oh, there's, there's something behind there? So um, that's a bare minimum, right, Be, because of patient guidelines. Um, but, you know, to expand on that, and, and I think that is a smart idea to expand on that is um, to to actually add um, that, you know, per clinical pathways, this patient is experiencing blah, blah, blah. We need a test. So give it context 
as to why that patient fit on that clinical pathway. It shouldn't take a lot of extra time or effort to do that. You definitely want to reference the pathway. That shows compliance and that you're thinking ahead and trying to manage your patients um, based on clinical uh, data approach, which is exceptional. Everybody needs to do that. But you also need to tie it to the patient with some specifics that, that say why that patient falls on the clinical pathway. And it can be fairly simple, you know, based on patient's presentation with blood in the urine, we're going to do a standard uh, uh, practice protocol for urology associates of wherever, um, which includes blah, 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 you know, something along those lines. But by that, you've tied the patient's presentation in to your clinical pathways and put it in the note. All right, ballpark, how much are we talking about? Is it, do you have that off the top of your head? Like, is this a, a big amount we're talking about that they're asking for, uh, or going in and seeking uh, uh, funds for? You know, the payers, are they getting any back? So it's a lot of these tests um, are not, and, and I, I won't say all of them, but a lot of them are not a huge payment per procedure. Um, the problem is volume. You know, if they, and, and, and payers will extrapolate. So that if they look at 30 charts and 15% and of them were wrong relative to a specific one, you know, even though that test like a UA is three bucks, you know, that's 45 bucks. And how many UAs did you order in a year for all their patients for the last two or three years? that is a number that adds up. Um, and then you've got some of your other tests that are actually much bigger um, in, in individual payments, and those add up even faster. Um, and those are really the targets for these folks. And so there's, if you're looking at it from a rack side of the equation, there's gold in them there hills to borrow <laughs> with some from Ray. That's, that's the way they look at that. Yeah, I guess otherwise they wouldn't be going after it if there if there wasn't something there. They're not going to waste their time on that. So, yep. all right, Ray, anything to add on that? No, I think that was a good explanation. It's all in the documentation. All right, can't tell you how many times we've heard you say that, Ray, over the years. <laughs> <laughs> And that thing's grown from uh, if you didn't document it, you didn't do it, to if you didn't document it, you're not going to get paid for it. Yeah. Guilty as charged. <laughs> okay. Part two of the the, the podcast today, uh, we've uh, seen some questions coming in on uh, coding for laparoscopic and robotic procedures. And we we get this fairly regularly. So you want to walk us through kind of the thought process and what what the different entities have kind of given us the guidelines for how to how to submit these claims. Sure, and um, you know the the use of laparoscopic approach and and robots and robotics um, is growing, and and the the CPT nomenclature is not keeping up. This is the bottom line. It takes a couple of years for a code to go through. Um, there's always a consideration of a new code being introduced to how it's going to affect the relative values for other things within the family. And so it's it's just a, a slow process to really keep up 
with the innovation that is going on surrounding treating patients and and the the system isn't isn't doing it in this regard and there's a number of of examples of this across the board um, so basically the the initial response and and I think the AUA had the right response to this initially their their response was yeah you know the most of what we're doing with the, the with the robot or the laparoscope is just changing the approach. We're doing procedures that are already in the CPT manual. Um, we just don't have a laparoscopic code. And then, of course, we've got your general robot code, which they've said specifically they're not going to do anything to really add robotic into their descriptions. That's just a, a tool, not a, not a real approach. The laparoscope is an approach, but the tool, the robot, isn't something that you're going to that you're going to see much difference from. Now, the HICPIC level two code, um, the S code for robot is one that's out there that you can track things with. But the predominant uh, payer opinion on that is that's not worth any extra revenue. So it's a zero code for a lot of folks. It's more of a tracking thing at this point in time. So you can always add the robot code if the robot's being used. But so the bottom line is, what is there a laparoscopic code for the procedure that you're doing, like a cystectomy or a laparoscopic stone removal or um, any of those uh, services that when you look through the CPT code manual in the laparoscopy section, it's not there. Um, so the AMA's or the AUA's original advice was just use the open code. Well, the uh, powers that be within the AMA um, because of the decision they had made to develop laparoscopic codes. In fact, I recall early on, Ray, we, we tried to get the AMA to actually develop a modifier for laparoscopy instead of uh, coming up with separate codes. And, you know, as, as usual, we were ignored. But um, <laughs> so, so they decided to develop specific lapar laparoscopy codes. And in keeping with that philosophy, and I will give them credit for being consistent, um, they have come out and they told the AUA and other specialties, you cannot use an open code if you're doing a laparoscopy um, in the approach. So uh, the, the appropriate coding for any of those procedures uh, is to use the unlisted laparoscopy code um, for the organ that you're operating on. So if it's the kidney, use the, uh, the unlisted laparoscopy code for kidney. If it's for bladder, use unlisted bladder. Um, for prostate, use un unlisted prostate, again, under laparoscopy. Um, so, you, uh, and if there is an open laparoscopy code for it, obviously use that. Now, you can and should use the open code to help support whatever you charge, the value you're expecting to be paid. Um, so, you know, listing that in your executive summary or in box 19, something that this is similar to XYZ code, which is the open variation of what you're doing, um, that can help you set your pricing and that is appropriate. But it, it, it is an across the board CPT directive. Um, so that would mean unless you're You've got specifically in writing a directive to report otherwise to a specific payer, then you need to use an unlisted laparoscopy code if you're performing a procedure 
using uh, a laparoscope um, or the robot to do those procedures. So you'd mentioned that there's a, a robotic code that uh, the tracking code that you said you you know you might you might use it you can or cannot should you use it so from a coder's perspective you should i think it's smart to track those things and to build your your metadata internally um the problem we have seen and the reason i said could instead of should is that some of your payers because it's a zero pay code will tangle up your claims altogether when you report that code. So you've got to watch it from what payers can and cannot process. If it's just a line denial, fine, use it. Put it in, put it in your charge if you want and take the denial and know that your AR is going to, you know, suffer a hit for those write-offs, but at least you got the track in there. If you're worried about your AR, you can put it in with a zero charge or an 01, uh, meaning a penny to get it through the system to then, you know, let the payer know you're expecting this to not be paid. Um, so, you know, multiple approaches uh, with that piece. Um, again, I, I think from a data perspective, it is something that you would want to do. Um, there are other ways to approach that. A lot of your systems have charge code versus CPT codes so that you can search on different levels and charge codes would allow you to track it internally, um, but then remove it from the bill going out um, so that you can, you know, start building the efficacy data that you need um, longer term to, to, to decide whether or not the robot is a valuable tool for that particular procedure. And since this is going in as an unlisted, is this always going to be delayed in paying? Are, are there, you know, are there, is there a way to speed that up? Uh, besides, all, you know, giving all the proper documentation up front? So the uh, so that you can control only what you can control, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there are definitely uh, some, the the use of the that box 19 or the explanation box is one that we have found very helpful in helping navigate a faster payment pathway by consistently providing the same information in that box 19 when you're using the unlisted code. And, and the reason that that works is twofold. Um, number one, um, from, a, from a practice specific level, payers start to learn who is providing accurate data and who is not. Um, so they can actually set their protocols up on adjudication side for what is, well, I, I always kind of refer to it as semi-automated payment, where it goes to an individual who is instructed to kick an override to process something that drops out manually easily. Um, and then the second thing that is there is, is they can, they can, the payer can do system-wide uh, semi-auto automation of the adjudication and direct it on everybody that if this code comes in with this explanation, here's your payment level, and here's the coverage related to that. Those are, those are just edits that they place in to give your frontline adjudicators at the, claim, at, the, at, the, at the payer level the ability to process claims without doing a deep dive into a full review of records. So what you can control is uh, if it is a procedure you're doing more than once, um, be consistent with the information you provide in box 19. Be consistent with your uh, 
charges in that box 19 so that you can start training your payers that there is an opportunity for them to pay you without incurring the deep level costs of a of a full chart review all right anything to add ray sorry i was muted uh, no i don't have anything else to add i think uh uh, that should be understandable and nice job, Mark. Well, thanks. And, and I don't think this is new. I mean, I think most people kind of know this. Um, but I do think that, you know, as physicians start grabbing new things, you know, there's, there, there's always the, the, the revisit that they have like, hey, I found this or my friend told me about this or these types of things. And, um, you know, get communicating across the practice as to how you're going to handle those circumstances um, would be another piece that I would put in place that, you know, you have a, a, a good communication between your billing staff your, and, your, and your clinical staff as to how you handle new things and, and, and what needs to go into place. So you kind of have set procedures and protocols. All right, I got one final question that you kind of mentioned early on, and uh, and that's kind of ties into the new things category and the new codes. Can you briefly, and I know this is not a brief topic, but briefly share why they aren't putting those codes, you know, of new technology and everything. You had mentioned that it's uh, in the in the family code. You can't do it because the RVUs and budget neutrality. That seems a little crazy that you have to tie it to to other things when you got a new procedure that you wanted to put a code to but yet there's all these other rules why uh well it's <laughs> it, it's it's multifaceted you know i mean coding um is getting more and more complex you know billing rules and coverage rules and everything that layers on top of all of that is is complex, um, and then we have a, 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 a an evolution in healthcare um, that is n not slow by any means. I mean, we're learning more and more about how we treat things. We're bringing in new technology across the board, and then the existing technology is getting leveraged over uh, over uh, things that we used to do only one way. So there's there's a lot that's happening there. And so in addition to the just kind of the mechanics of getting a new CPT code, which it takes two years and you've got to have studies and and the, the hurdles that keep CPT um, at its highest level um, is, is step one in that overall process. Step two, when you think about it, is, you know, imagine the number of codes you're going to need to handle all this stuff. You know, we're you know, we're talking about, you know, maybe adding, let's say if you add for each specialty two to three CPT codes a year, you know, you've got for for technology overlap and you've got another um, you know, 26 specialties, you know, you're talking about 75 to 100 codes that you know you're you would need to be added each year and you layer that over time that's that's a significant addition into 
you know, it, adding on top of that, the stuff that's really new, because we're already getting 400 or so CPD code changes a year. So, you know, if you're you're talking about 5,000, you know, 500 to 600 new codes every year, um, you know, that that adds up. So it's 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 a it's a multifaceted issue um, that that everyone has to struggle with. And, and, and that includes the AMA. Well, Mark, we probably ought to mention the RUC process at this point and how a new code impacts your payment for sometimes the old codes. And yeah, that, one of the reasons that the AUA is reluctant to go after new codes at times. I, you know, I, every specialty has the same considerations as they go through this and and re-rucking um, or resurveying everything to try and connect codes together um, is an area that is that has to be taken into account um, you know it, there there could be um, other ways that this could get set up um, within and and it would be interesting to see if you know, the AMA and Medicare would be willing to revisit the way that new codes are added within the RUC process and see if that truly changed the approach. Um, but, you know, I, I think you still have to solve the other parts of the equation of, you know, what is the hurdle for a new code? Um, how many new codes do you want to put in any in a year? How extensive do we want the code set to be so it's it's not just one thing it's multiple and you kind of got to attack them all before you can blame it on any one thing so you know it's <laughs> it's all a consideration and it all needs to be addressed one way or another if if we're going to continue down this path it, it the whole rug process and the payment system is kind of like crabs in a bucket one crab starts to crawl out, the others grab them. So you don't have to worry about a crab escaping from a bucket. And with this zero-sum game we're in, why if one specialty gets paid a little more, other specialties get paid a little less. And if you go for a new code, they are going to relook at all the current codes. And there is a chance that if those codes are resurveyed, then the payment for the existing codes may go down. So that's another issue that is thought about before going for new codes. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a can of worms, and that's a whole different discussion. Sorry, I opened that thing. <laughs> Indoors box. <laughs> yes, it yes. is. All right. Uh, anything else to add for today's podcast? Not from my end. Not from my end. All right. Last word to you, Ray. Happy coding. Thank you for listening to the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast, where we help urologists and staff achieve peak economic and practice efficiency. So there's time and energy to focus on patient care and a happy life. Special thanks to Carl Painter for the music today. 
You can find his music under his record label, The Juicery, with extra pulp and special guests.